Well, welcome. Thank you for coming to Galatians, and I hope we'll have a fruitful time together. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we are so blessed as your unworthy servants to be your servants at the end of the age in Jesus Christ, the true servant of the living God, who carried out that great and mighty act through his death and resurrection and brought you even more intimately to us so that we now may call you Abba, Father, in a new and everlasting way through your Son. We thank you so much for your word by which you build us up in your Son and encourage us in his grace. We ask that you would now encourage us as we study Paul's letter to the Galatians. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, is indeed a historic letter. It has had historic ramifications in the church. And even if Luther's great Reformation insight into the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone may have been spurred primarily or firstly by Romans, it was a great impetus to the whole Reformation. In fact, Luther writes one of his most famous commentaries in 1535 on the book of Galatians, which is still considered a classic even by those who are not Christians. So something you might consider reading along with this series of lectures. Well, the Protestant Reformation has brought Galatians and Romans to the fore to us, and even in our own time, many movements and studies in Paul have focused on Galatians and have actually tried to refute the Reformation's teaching on justification by a perverse interpretation of Galatians, as well as Romans. And in the course of this study, we'll look at that on occasion. But today, what I'd like to focus on is primarily the background to the book of Galatians. Uh, This is not going to be exactly like the rest of the weeks. The rest of the weeks, we're going to get more in-depth into the actual letter itself. So if you go away tonight feeling like, well, it's not quite what I was expecting, well, it's not going to be what you should expect for the weeks to come. Okay. But I think this is still helpful to us. It's helpful because it grounds the book in redemptive history. At least that's our attempt, to try to see out of the context out of which Paul is writing this letter. Because the book of Acts gives us a progress of redemptive history as God is working his mighty acts and deeds through his apostles in the giving forth of the gospel to the nations. There's a real progress there. And somehow this epistle fits into that progress. And if we try to at least 
get a little bit of a grasp on that. Maybe we'll get something of a grasp on the riches of the drama that's found in this book. So, without further ado, a little bit on the background of Galatia. And just very briefly, I've, I've given you a handout here. Uh, you can see Galatia, the history, and I'm not going to go into great detail on this history. But as we do this, uh, you might, in fact, find your map helpful, which is the last page of your handouts. And we'll be looking at these in terms of Paul's missionary journeys, because these are maps of Paul's missionary journeys. However, um, I'd like you to take a look uh, primarily at the map of his first missionary journey. And you will notice that at the very top right-hand side of that map, on the first missionary journey, it says Galatia. Galatia. Okay. Now, Galatia originally was a small backwater area up here in the north, composed mostly of Celtic people, Okay, who you're familiar with the Celts as they came through Gaul uh, in those areas, and so a lighter-skinned people. But as the Roman Empire expanded, was as Rome progressed in its history, what happened was the Galatians, uh, the Galatian territory was expanded. It's a province. It's not simply a group of people. So this group of people that were Celts, that... Uh, most of them didn't speak Greek to begin with. Uh, that was initially the Galatian area, but then the Romans expanded it and gradually expanded it. So eventually, by the time of the Apostle Paul, the Galatian province okay, included the areas that you see where Paul visited on his first missionary journey. They include cities, such if you see the far right-hand side, we'll go from the far right-hand side, up and back down to the left, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and Pisidia. So by Paul's time, you could have called those areas Galatia. So I've given you three, you know, just three blanks there. There's five cities I gave you. So uh, maybe... Someone wants to uh, Ben? Could you could you tell us a few of the cities there? Just see see how well you were on track there. What cities could you fill in there in those blanks? Yeah. Good. Exactly, in Pisidia, right? So there becomes this big question in New Testament scholarship, where did Paul write Galatians? I mean, to whom did he write? Did he write to the people in northern Galatia, or did he write to the southern Galatians? Right? And some people assume that he must have just written to the northern Galatians, and they assume that Galatia could only be described as northern Galatia. In fact, uh, it's true that many in the early church assumed that when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he was writing to the northern Galatians. 
And the reason for that was in about 74 AD, after Paul's time, gradually that Roman province of Galatia shrunk more and more until, until the mid-2nd century AD, it's said to have shrunk to the point where it primarily composed what is now considered northern Galatia. And so many of the church fathers said, oh, he's writing to the Galatians. So they looked at Galatian in terms of their own perspective, which was what we call northern Galatia. But this began to be questioned, especially in the 19th century with the age of archaeology. People started looking into archaeological digs, and there's discoveries that uh, gave the impression that, in fact, Galatia uh, was a term that could be used for the southern area. And a very famous evangelical who wrote on this is Sir William Ramsey, uh, and he argued vigorously for what's called the Southern Galatian Theory. Well, if that's the case, let's take a look. Let's take a look at our maps. I've already kind of let the cat out of the bag. Where does Paul minister? Where does Paul establish churches? Does he establish churches, at least on the first missionary journey, in southern or northern Galatia? Southern Galatia, right? So that gives us the impression that he probably is writing to the southern Galatians. All right. Well... There are people who still argue for the Northern Galatian theory. How are they going to do it? Well, look at the second map, the second missionary journey. What Paul does is from Antioch, he returns back to the southern Galatian cities that he had visited before, And then he goes from Iconium all the way to Troas. So these northern Galatian theorists said, between Iconium and Troas, he went up way up into northern Galatia. Well, the problem with that, according to those who are more familiar with uh, archaeology, is, for one there was no significant road for Paul to go, to travel that way, besides the fact that Acts says nothing about it. And it would have been about 200 kilometers out of his way. So the evidence is basically nothing for northern Galatia. So all the evidence suggests that Paul wrote to the southern Galatians And this would seem to ground the letter in the redemptive historical situation of Acts. Paul establishes these churches, especially in Acts 13, beginning of Acts 14. So that could help us to understand the letter and the situation uh, to which Paul is writing. Now... We might ask, if that's the case, where, I mean, you know, when was he, when did he write this letter? When did he write this letter? 
And this is definitely still a debated point. Okay, There are people who argue for Southern Galatia, South Galatian theory. There are people who argue for the North Galatian theory. Okay. And if you're a Northern Galatian, where are you going to assume this letter was written, Art? What do you think? When, when do you think you're going to assume it was written, if you're a Northern Galatianist? Uh, during the Second Missionary Journey. Okay, at least either during or after the Second Missionary Journey, right? So you're going to have to go for the Second Missionary Journey or the Third. Most go for the Third, okay? For other things we'll look at. Now, Robert, where could when could you argue that the letter of Galatians was written if you're a Southern Galatianist? What do you think? I can move on if you if you're not sure. He establishes the churches. When does he establish those Southern Galatian churches? Okay, you want to help him? No? Which? When does he establish those Southern Galatian churches? On his first, second, or third missionary journey? First. Okay. On the first. Thank you, Kay. All right. On the first. So, if it's on the first... It, excuse me. It could be hypothetically during the first, second, or third missionary journey. Hypothetically, but looking at the context of Galatians, it looks like he's writing to the churches of Galatia. Okay. So if he's doing it during the first missionary church journey, he's going to have to be writing from one Galatian church right to the rest of them. So it's very unlikely that it would be first missionary journey. Okay, it would either be after the it could be after the first between the first and second. Okay, because there's a period of time between the first and second. It doesn't have to be during the second or third, but period between the first and second or the third. Here you don't have that option. It has to be at least sometime later in the second missionary journey, or through the third. I mean, unless you wanted to extend it further. Okay. Well, let me suggest to you. Uh, I mean, obviously, this is going to this is going to press for a later date, right? But there are people in this camp who are going to argue for an early date between the first and second, or a later date, probably around the third during the third missionary journey. So just, you know, the view that you take of whether it's Southern Galatian or Northern Galatia doesn't necessarily tell you um, when this letter was written. There's more to consider. Now, uh, I'll just give you a few names this time around. Uh, as far as scholars, if any of you scholarly types want to follow up on this, uh, the earlier date is held by F.F. F. Bruce, who was a 
somewhat of an evangelical. And Ben Witherington III, who is also in that same camp. The later date was has been held by many people in Northern Galatian theory, but it was also held uh, by B.B. Warfield, at least in 1881, when he wrote an article on this. He didn't hold to the Northern Galatian theory. He probably I don't remember. I don't think the, the article deals with that. Probably Southern, but uh, he argues certainly for a later date, uh, because during that time that was an assumption that it was a later date. Well. In answering this question, there is a few things that we want to look at. One is something I put on your outline, and that is the Jerusalem Council. Is that the same thing as Acts 15? Is the Jerusalem Council the same thing as Acts 15? And then the other thing primarily we're going to look at is how this letter fits in with some of the other letters Paul wrote. Okay. Most of the people who argue for an early date are going to focus on uh, arguing that this is not Act, Galatians 2 is not the same thing as Acts 15. Many who focus on the later date are going to notice the comparison between Galatians and Romans because there's a lot of similarities. They're going to say Galatians is written closer to the time of Romans. So perhaps during the third missionary journey from Ephesus. Well, first of all, let's take a look, and I, and I don't pretend to have a definitive answer on this, so I'm certainly open to objections and engagement from all of you. But first of all, let's just take a brief look at the similarities and differences between the Galatians 2 episode and Acts 15. So why don't you take turn to your Bibles to Galatians 2. And Renee, could you read for us uh, verses 1 to 10? Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders, for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to take us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of gospel might remain with you. As for those who seemed to be important, whatever they were, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. 
For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay, thank you. Just want to get that fresh in your mind. And then we're not going to read all of Acts 15, but I want to, I want to read a few highlights from it. So, um, let me read, I'm going to read verse 1. And some men, this is Acts 15, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, and Pete, could you read for us um, verses... Uh, Five and six. In the beginning. Five and six. Yeah, five and six. <clears throat> then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. Okay, and then verse seven speaks of them having debate over the issue. And then it's, then it's concluded in verse 22. Uh, Sarah, could you read that? I'm sorry, I was reading something else. Verse which? Acts 15, 22. Yes. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. Okay. And then they send the letter. Notice in the couple of the verses that we read, we have uh, verse 6 and verse 22, we have the apostles and elders meeting together. Okay. We didn't see the elders in Galatians 2. So um, that is one of the distinctions. Uh, well, let's, let's start with similarities between these two situations. First of all, in both of these, in both of these accounts, Acts 15 and Galatians 2, we have Paul and Barnabas going up to Jerusalem. And they meet with leaders of the church. And they go up because people who are false brethren are saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Acts 15.1. However, um, there are differences. There are differences between these two events. One is, the meeting of Galatians uh, 2 was a private meeting, at least it so seems, between Paul and perhaps Barnabas and Titus and those reputed to be pillars of the church, James, Peter, and John. And... <clears throat> Also, the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15 was a public assembly of the church, which included the church elders, as I mentioned. So it was public, whereas the Galatians 2 act, uh, meeting seems to be a private meeting. Uh, 
As an aside, some people have also mentioned the Paul's involvement in Galatians 2, which seems to be prominent, whereas in Acts 15, although Luke makes much of Paul's actions in general, he does not give Paul a major role in Acts 15. Um, But at best, that could be supportive. Um, Then uh, you have, in Acts 15, 22, you have the apostles and elders commissioning Paul Barnabas, Judas, and Silas to bring the Jerusalem decree to Antioch. But in Galatians, nothing is said of the Jerusalem apostles commissioning Paul in Acts 2. You see, there's no, there's no commission there given in Galatians 2 by the Jerusalem apostles to Paul. And it would seem that Galatians 2 is used as an example by Paul to prove that his commission was independent of Jerusalem. Galatians 1, 1 and 12. So it seems unlikely that he was commissioned in Galatians 2. So uh, I find it personally more persuasive at this point that this meeting in Galatians 2 was not the meeting in Acts 15. So that if we go the timeline of Acts, if that is correct, then we've got Acts 15 occurring somewhere here. And we'd have Paul's meeting privately before or after Acts 15. Zach, what do you think? After. After, okay. Let's say if we put it after. If it were Galatians 2 after. Anybody see a problem with that? Okay. Okay, so this would have already been decided, right? And so that it would seem you know, ridiculous to have this meeting afterwards, is what you're saying, right? Okay, that would be an argument against it. Yes. I think there's also another argument against it if you look at Galatians 2 1. Galatians 2.1. Yeah, 14 years later, after an interval of 14 years, Paul seems to suggest, you see, that his earlier meeting with the apostles, okay, uh, was then followed up 14 years later. Whether you say it's 14 years after that first meeting he has with them, in Galatians 1, or if you say it's 14 years after his you know, conversion, he's implying that there's no other visits in between that time. There's a long period of time that exists, you see, between the previous meeting he had in Jerusalem and this meeting in Galatians 2. Well, if this meeting in Galatians 2 takes place after Acts 15, it's not going to be taking place a decade, 14 years, or whatever, after Acts 15. 
Okay. He's suggesting, Paul's suggesting Galatians, there's no meetings between this and his previous meetings. So it would seem more likely that we would have Galatians 2 be here before. And that would fit with what Kay suggested as well. That there is no appeal in Galatians to the Jerusalem decree, although it's that's in and of itself may not be a completely strong argument. But it seems more likely that we have Galatians two occurring here, if it is not the same thing as Acts fifteen. Well, yes. Are you suggesting that this is shortly before Council of Jerusalem? Uh, this is a pre-council lobbying session. How much time do you imagine if between Galatians 2 and Acts 15? Um, I was going to hold you guys in suspense for a little bit. Well, but all right, I'll stay in suspense. You'll stay in suspense. Until you get there. Okay. So think about this, and we're going to look at it in a few minutes. And I'm going to ask you where you might want to place this. Yes. But we're going to take a detour for a moment to leave you in a little suspense to the arguments for the later date, the later date of writing this letter. One of the major arguments for the later date for writing this letter is found in Galatians 4.13. And somebody who has an NASB could read that for us. Maybe that's Jim. (laughs) I don't know. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. Okay, the first time. You see, that suggests that Paul preached to, has preached to them twice before this letter. At least that particular translation suggests that he's preached to them twice before giving this letter. So to many, this suggests that he does writes this letter after the second missionary journey. You see, after he's come to them at least twice, and after the second missionary journey. However, this term, it's in Greek, to proteron, may in fact simply mean formerly. It can mean either formerly or the first time. So he may simply be saying, when I formerly preached the gospel to you. And if he's saying that, he is not making a distinction between one time and a second time. And I'll read to you a couple, since this is a picky point, I'll read to you a few grammarians or at least one thing. Here we have uh, Bauer, Art, and Gingrich. Uh, They say of this that uh, to proteron can mean before, once, or formerly, and they give a number of examples for this. And then they also say that it can mean the first time. So it can mean formerly, 
or the first time. All right. Now, after saying it could mean the first time, they say, so probably also Galatians 4.13 means the first time. But naturally, the translation once is also possible. And from a lexical point of view, it is not possible to establish the thesis that Paul wished to differentiate between a later visit and an earlier one. And then one more quote from Ben Witherington. It is quite true that the adjective proteros can function as a comparative, that is the former of the two, in distinction from protos, the first of a series. But in Hellenistic or Koine Greek, the two terms often were equivalent In their detailed analysis of the papyri and comparison of them with the New Testament, J.H. Moulton and G. Milligan pointed out that proteron in all its New Testament uses has the more general sense of previously or originally, not the comparative sense on the former of two occasions. And they provide examples. So... We're left with either option, though, if the quote from Witherington is correct, it has the sense of formerly more often in the New Testament. So I would suggest that in and of itself, this is not a convincing argument for the fact that Paul has preached to them twice. Now, it's also been stated, though, that if if that's what he means, uh, though it's ambiguous, it is possible that this could all be encompassed within the first missionary journey. Looking at that map from the first missionary journey, why would you think some people argue that? Frank, you're looking down at your map. Yes, uh, some people, okay, it, I'm saying that we can't establish the fact that it means the first time out of two, okay? But if even someone wants to press that, Is it possible that he visited them twice during the first missionary journey? What does the map show you? Yes, the arrows go both ways. He visits the cities once, and then he comes back around and visits them again on the way back. So it is possible, either on either construction, that this letter was written after the first missionary journey, and not necessarily after, you know, you know, at a point of the second missionary journey to the third missionary journey. Well, there's another argument made by those who take the late date of Galatians, and this was a popular argument, especially in the 19th century and later. And that is the similarity of this letter to Romans. The similarity of this letter to Romans. And anyone who has read both letters carefully will notice that Paul picks up many of the themes that he has in Galatians in Romans, especially in chapter 3 of Abraham being 
essentially the father of the children of God and believing on God and having it credited to him as righteousness. This is clearly picked up in Romans 4 and expanded by Paul. And the language of justification by grace alone through faith alone, as opposed to those who want to seek their justification in the law. This is a clear theme in both letters. You do not find this theme, at least anywhere pronounced, in First and Second Thessalonians. And so it is thought that this is not written at a time that this letter, you see you have Galatians here and Romans and maybe First and Second Corinthians between them, but separated from Thessalonians, which comes first. And so this connection between the two puts Thessalonians first. Why would that be significant for the argument that this could not have been written after the first missionary journey, but must have been written either during or after at least the second missionary journey? Take a look at your maps. Does Paul... Okay, if you want to take a look at the second missionary journey map. You will see on the very far left-hand side, the word Macedonia. You see that word? Underneath that, what city name do you find? Thessalonica, Thessalonica right? He goes to Thessalonica in the second missionary journey. Now look at the first missionary journey. Does he travel that far to Thessalonica? No, he does not. So he has not gone to Thessalonica until the second missionary journey. And so, if Thessalonians is first, Galatians is written later, second to third missionary journey at least. Most are arguing for the third missionary journey right before or sometime before he writes Romans, probably from Ephesus, Galatians at least. Okay, So that may push us in the direction of saying a later date. Now, I find this argument more persuasive than the formerly argument of Galatians 4.13 because of the theological and, you know, context and perhaps there's something between the, the comparison of these two epistles which will then unearth for us something of Paul's own biography at that point, of their similarities, and how Paul's ministry is progressing. But at the same time, I need to note to you the arguments against this. And the arguments against this could be that Paul's gospel is fully formulated by the time of the first missionary journey. In fact, he, Paul, is suggesting to the Galatians that he is reminding them of the gospel that he preached to them by which they first believed. Galatians 3, 1 to 5. He's reminding them of the gospel by which they first believed. So when he says these things to them, 
in Galatians, though there may be new aspects of Revelation coming forth from Paul's pen to them here, the essential nature of the message has been given to them. Also, another argument that might be put forward from the epistle itself is that Paul makes his discussion with Peter in Galatians 2 the basis of this argument for justification. You take a look at Galatians 2.15. If, you were to, if we were to read 11 through 14, we would see there that Paul is opposing Cephas to his face, Peter to his face, because he was in the wrong and separated himself from Gentile believers in eating and fellowship. And then someone read for us 2.15. We are, Jews by <coughs> we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles? Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. And verse 16. Sorry. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the words of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Okay. Now, it's debated whether or not Paul actually said this to Peter at the time of Antioch, or whether or not Paul is now simply giving the essence of his rebuttal to uh, Peter and now speaking to the church of Galatia. Nonetheless, whatever view you take on that, Paul's doctrine of justification was the essence of his rebuttal to Peter, and shows that the essence of what Paul is giving forth in this letter is that which, in a sense, is a response to that particular historical period. So this may allow for more of a persuasion that it's not simply that yeah, Galatians and Romans go together in content, but even prior to, if you will, prior to Paul even coming to the Thessalonians. The essence of that message that later gets expanded in Romans is found in essence given to the church of Galatia when he preached the gospel to them. It's the substance of which he, by which he refutes Peter, which is earlier on uh, you know, in the Antioch situation, which is before his second missionary journey, that perhaps the letter itself then is written at an earlier period in accordance with these historical events. And if that is the case, then Romans, as some have argued, may be Paul later on, as there's still contention against the Judaizers going on throughout his ministry, as perhaps some are even focusing on the book of Galatians as a contention for Paul, that Romans, in writing Romans to the Romans, that he feels a necessity to uh, actually expand on what he had said in Galatians and give it forth an interpretation uh, that <clears throat> would in fact show that his message is going out to both Jew and Gentile alike, bringing them together in the gospel. 
So that may open up the possibility, that may open up the possibility that Galatians is before Thessalonians. Yeah. What's your thought about why it doesn't appear in Thessalonians? A, a comment about justification by faith. This is a Gentile audience yeah. as well. What's your thought there? Um, it's, it's very limited, except that to say that uh, that was not part of the occasion, the historical situation by which that was necessary to be revealed at that point, if indeed Galatians comes first. Um, it is with a Gentile audience in Rome. No, it's a good point. And so that may mediate the other side. I told you I'm not really dogmatic one way or another on this. I'm just interested in your thoughts. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly there's contention in Thessalonica, right, uh, in, the, in, the, in the synagogue. So you may think that this becomes a necessary issue and, and bone of contention. But... Uh, to press the point further that, that it may not be the situation at hand is that there may not be, you see, Thessalonian Christians who are at that point Judaizing. Um, that, that you have the Galatians, that group of churches has been Judaized uh, and partially, you know, Acts 15 tells us that there is that kind of thing going on at that particular point that there are people saying you have to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. Okay, So before the council, clearly there is that kind of bone of contention going on. Thessalonians are evangelized after the council, and it is a farther distance, perhaps. Uh, that bone of contention is not going on at that point when Paul writes the letter so quickly in response to the Thessalonians after he's left the mission with them. Uh, then the argument you see that, that's, that's made is that Romans, it's not only necessary that he write it to the Romans, uh, and, and I, I can't say that I, I buy this necessarily for sure, but, but there's an argument made that, that uh, at the point of Romans, he feels a necessity to write to the fact, write the fact that he is bringing together both Jews and Gentiles. Okay, which is which is certainly a situation that is occurring in the Church of Rome, okay, uh, and and to show that his mission to Spain is not simply a mission to uh, exclusively to Gentiles. So he argues in Romans 11, if, you know, I make much in my ministry if, if by any means I can bring my own people to jealously and so bring them to repentance. So that might be, yeah. Go ahead, Pete. Another point is that <clears throat> Thessalonica is kind of on the outskirts of the main civilization where Rome has much more contact with Syria and therefore the controversy would tend to be uh, more in Rome than it would be in Thessalonica. Okay, so you're saying that, that, that Rome has actually more contact with Syria. So looking at, that's your claim, the, on the map... If you look at the, uh, well, we can't show Rome on this map, but Syria, see, he's talking about Syria being Antioch, right? Right, Pete? Antioch and also uh, Judea and Caesarea and all okay. in that area. I wasn't aware that, that I was not aware that, that Rome had more contact with them than Thessalonica, but that's what you're suggesting. Yeah. Yeah, just from the very fact that there, was all, there were always contacts. Because Caesarea was run out of Rome. Okay. 
and uh, they would have a lot of contact being only 60 miles away from from Jerusalem. They'd have a lot of contact with the, the heart of Judaism in Judea. Well, part of the argument that I, I, I didn't know it included that element, but that would, if that is, you know, that would support the idea that that some people are arguing that Romans, uh, Paul in writing Romans finds a necessity to pick up the strands that he had in Galatians and expand them. Yeah. Well, no firm conclusions, but. Let's go back and take a look at the issue in Acts. Now we return. And this fits together with the arguments for the early date of Galatians. And those who argue for the early date of Galatians, uh, such as F.F. F. Bruce and Ben Witherington, they argue that Acts 15, first of all, that Galatians 2 and Acts 15 are not the same thing. We already looked at that. So they assume that Galatians 2 and Acts 15 are not the same event. Okay, so back to Jim's question. Where do we put Galatians 2? Where is that uh, counsel, uh, if you want private counsel? And the argument that is made... Uh, by Ben Witherington, is that it is the council of Acts, uh, not a council, excuse me, there is no council given by uh, Luke, but it is a part of the visit that Luke describes beginning in Acts 11.29 to 30 and ending in Acts 12.25. So uh, if someone would turn to uh, Acts 11.29 to 30, read that for us. Bob, you look alert. Acts 11, 29 to 30. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help to the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Okay. So notice, Barnabas and Saul go to Jerusalem with a gift for the people in Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, and the fact that they're going with a gift... Some have said, hey, they're concerned in, at the end of Galatians 2. See, Paul uh, is told, by uh, says at the end, he says, uh, they only ask, Galatians 2.10, that I, us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. And this verb is in a subjunctive here, which suggests that it, he is eager to continue to do it. Okay. Uh, so that there may be a continual sense here as if he's continuing to be interested in doing it. Well, we find that at Acts 11.30, that's the purpose of their visit, to bring such a gift to the poor in Jerusalem, essentially. Those who have are going to fall ill to the famine that is coming to Jerusalem. Well, then we have a discussion in Acts 12 about Peter's arrest and the death of Herod. But the whole time that is going on, it looks like Paul and Barnabas are actually in Jerusalem, because we find they leave in Acts 12.25. Who would like to read that for us? Acts 12.25. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Okay. 
So that is their return from that, from that visit. After that return, Paul and Barnabas go on the first missionary journey in Acts 13. They go to all the cities we saw uh, in the first missionary journey. And that continues on uh, through chapter 14. And then in chapter 15, we have the council in Acts 15. So the argument can be made that the end of Acts 11, uh, sorry, 29 to 30 through 12, 25, is the same visit as Galatians chapter 2. Now, uh, obviously, this assumes that something went on there that Luke is silent about, a private meeting between uh, Paul and Barnabas and, and the apostles. Okay? A private meeting, is, is nothing is said about it. But uh, some point out that, you know, of course, that's literarily possible, Paul has one purpose in Galatians 2, Luke has another. And Luke's purpose is often public meetings, and so he may not say anything about that, whereas he may say something about, Acts, uh, about the public council in Acts 15. Now, there is one issue here that seems to be a difference, though, between Galatians 2 and this occurrence. Look at Galatians 2.1. Actually, Galatians 2.2, I'm sorry. Craig, you want to read that for us? I went in response to a revelation that sat before them. Gospel that I preached. Look, look the Gentiles. Very good. Okay. He went up in response to a revelation. But Acts eleven twenty nine to thirty doesn't say that. It says that the disciples in Antioch, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea, and this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. This makes it seem like Galatians 2 is based, Paul goes up kind of instantaneously of, his, of himself, whereas in this text, there is a commission given. Those seem like two different things. Well, if that is a problem, maybe we should be looking again at Acts 15, right? And thinking Galatians 2 is the answer to that problem. But if we looked at Acts 15, that doesn't solve our problem. The same problem would be created by looking at Acts 15. Because at Acts 15, 1, we find uh, the same thing happening. Uh, excuse me, Acts 15, 2. Someone want to read Acts 15, 2 for us? And then Paul and 
Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Okay, so even on this occasion, it seems like there is some sort of commission of sorts, at least by the church um, in, uh, in Antioch. Okay, so if both of those have a commission, then either the idea of Paul going up by a revelation is, is not at odds with a commission, or this is a completely different occurrence, and, and Luke does not mention it. Well, let's look at that option. If it's a completely different occurrence, uh, then perhaps it goes somewhere here between. But is there a problem with that? Suggested to you Galatians 2.1 before as a problem for being after Acts 15. So the same problem might be here. Does anyone remember what that was? What? The 14 years, right. If we stick it here, if it's here, then certainly his last visit here is certainly nowhere close to 14 years earlier, right? So, at this point, I think it more probable that the idea of a revelation is not at odds with the commission given at 11.29 to 30. But I'm not dogmatic on that, but I just don't see how it can fit here. If it's there, if it's not inconsistent with the commission, uh, in fact, it's, it's loosely put there in Acts 11.29, uh, that they're sending Paul and Barnabas with this relief, if the two purposes are not at odds, and this meeting is the same as the Acts 11.29, then it would seem to fit best with the previous history of Paul's conversion in Acts 9 and the period of time that most likely existed between Acts 9 and the end of Acts 11. Well, you probably need a break after all that, and we'll come back to this a little bit. (laughs) Probably enough on your mind at the moment. Okay, so now uh, I, I will I will warn you, the rest of the weeks aren't going to be so easy. <laughs> no, obviously this week is quite different than the other weeks, and, and they should be a lot easier to keep your mind on the, the text of Galatians, right, than jumping around. Uh, but uh, notice that even if this event of Galatians 2 
is the same thing as Acts 11, 29 to 30 and 12, 25. If this is the same event, this still would possibly allow for a later date for the writing of Galatians. Paul was simply silent about Acts 15 and didn't bring that into the discussion, it might be argued, because this historical situation is what was the spur for him in Acts in, in Galatians 2.15 to speak on justification, and he just didn't come back to any previous history. However, uh, those who suggest for a, a, a very early date, some argue that he wrote the book of Galatians here before Acts 15, before the Council of Jerusalem. So that here is Galatians 2, Paul going to Jerusalem the first time and meeting with James and Peter and John. And then after this, Paul comes to, I mean, Peter comes to Antioch, okay, here. And then Paul, you know, has his refutation of Peter and Barnabas and is still not far removed from that historical situation. And what Acts 15 one says about, or Acts 15, 1 and 2 say about these people coming to preach that you have to be circumcised, well, that's already in the air. Okay, that's already in the air right around here. Okay, and so it's already gotten into Galatia. And Paul feels that he has to write the book of Galatians. And therefore, he's written it here. That's why he doesn't say anything about the council. And so they will say, well, if it was written after the council... Why didn't he say something about the council? That would have helped silence the argument. He could have said, in addition, here's the Jerusalem decree. Well, I think that's suggestive, though I'm not sure if it's conclusive. So uh, I will let your mind wrestle with some of these issues a little bit. Um, And there is one other thing that you could look at if you're dealing with this, and I I put it as an aside because I don't know how much weight it has, but some will focus on the fact that Galatians 1.1 has only Paul speaking, not Paul and Barnabas. And then uh, Paul just gives the message there. uh, Thessalonian correspondence, we have Paul referencing Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And then in 1 Corinthians, he's got uh, Paul and Sosthenes, okay, and then in 2 Corinthians, it's Paul and Timothy. All right. So the thought is maybe this one doesn't go somewhere in the middle. Why doesn't Paul have a companion? Uh, well, that may depend upon where he is and who he's with, too. Uh, and it's true that by the time we get to Romans, he's speaking himself, all by himself. Uh, but some press this to suggest that Galatians is prior Paul by himself. He's not even speaking with, uh, with Barnabas. Well, my conclusion to this is that while Galatians 2 is probably not the Jerusalem council, it is not impossible that Paul wrote Galatians after that council. But I have to say I find it a little more persuasive that it may be written before the council and perhaps might place me being a little bit more persuaded that it's perhaps the first epistle, which is not the normal run. <laughs> the normal run is 1 Thessalonians being the, the, the first epistle. Uh, but 
I may change on that, and maybe you'll convince me. I don't know. All right. Well, there's some other things that uh, we could look at here, um, and you'll see uh, in your outline here that I go on after we discuss this uh, to discuss Paul's use of rhetoric. And we'll just be brief on this because many po- people look at Paul's use of rhetoric. What do we mean by Paul's use of rhetoric? You know, I, I say to you, uh, um, uh, I ask you a rhetorical question. We usually think that's a question that doesn't demand an answer, right? Or the answer is assumed. Okay, not exactly using, here we're not exactly using rhetoric that way. We're using rhetoric in terms of how the Greeks and the Romans taught people to give public speeches. That was rhetoric. And they had certain books on describing how you do it. Aristotle wrote one of them. And so they would train speakers, and there would be several forms of rhetoric. And there have been some scholars who argue that Galatians represents one form of rhetoric as opposed to another. So I thought I'd just briefly tell you what these points of rhetoric were. Uh, there are three main types of rhetoric, and they are called deliberative. The first one is deliberative, and it's spelled the way it sounds. Deliberative. And the second one is forensic. You can put these in any order. And the third is a very unusual name, epideictic. Don't worry, I'll tell you what that means. (laughs) So you have deliberative, forensic, and epideictic. E-P-E-D. E-I-C-T-I-C. Well, deliberative is when you're trying to persuade someone to do something. Okay? And obviously, in this epistle, Paul is trying to persuade the Galatians to do something. To take action, ultimately not to accept these Judaizers, uh, not allow themselves to be uh, compelled to be circumcised, and to live in charity toward the brethren. Forensic is what we find in a law court situation. Okay, So, uh, you know, this would be the kind of uh, thing that our friend here is an expert at, forensic law court arguments, right? And uh, so a lawyer might use these. Uh, Often defense, okay, defense of someone who's accused or something like that, And some people would put uh, apologetic arguments in here. Uh, A defense of Paul's apostleship. Some argue that Paul is defending his apostleship in this letter. Epideictic rhetoric is the rhetoric of praise. It's often used perhaps at a funeral, uh, perhaps after some general wins a war. Uh, Praise for their great and mighty deeds, for instance. Well, some scholars say, ah, this is mainly forensic. Uh, I don't think it is. 
Some say it's mainly deliberative. I think that's closer to the truth. Few say it's epideictic. But I would suggest to you that Paul, though he may be using rhetorical conventions, is basically doing using them for his Christian purpose. And some scholars have argued that, I think, well. That he is taking all types of forms of argumentation, and when they're appropriate to arguing for the gospel, and especially to arguing against the Judaizers and for the arrival of the new age in Christ Jesus, he uses all these different kinds of arguments when it's appropriate. So occasionally we might take a look at some of those. Well, now, any questions about all that we've talked about so far? I've assumed one thing, and I haven't put it so much into today's lesson. I've assumed something about his opponents, because we're going to think about that more as we get into the epistle. Who is Paul opposing? But of course, you already know that I have in mind Judaizers, people who are saying that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved, right? And Paul is going to reject that, especially with his doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone. Well, then without further ado, let's take a look at the epistle. And uh, Marge, could you read for us uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5? Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, now you'll notice the outline that I have here, uh, if it's called an outline, page three of your handout. And first of all, I'd like to take a brief look at a possible structure here, especially in verses 1 and 3. We have something or someone mentioned on the outsides in the A section, and... uh, I couldn't put, I didn't know how to put primes on here, but we've got A, an A section, and then we have A prime, meaning that those two are similar. And then we have uh, a B, oops, and a B prime, putting those two as similar. So, Marge, since you just read it, 
you see anything that's similar between verses 1 and 3. Okay, Jesus Christ and God the Father. Good. So where would you put uh, Jesus Christ? In the A sections or the B sections? Um, well, Jesus Christ is named first. Okay. The first part and the second and the second part. Good. Okay, so it's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ down here. And then God the Father, and God the Father. Well, if that's the case, Frank, what do we? What do you think is in between those? What's that? Paul. Okay. Is that... There's something to that. And what? Paul or... Paul's there. Theology of the book. Theology of the book. Now I'm thinking actually physically on the page in between this. What verse is it physically on the page between verses 1 and 3? Verse 2. Verse 2, okay. It's okay, what's in verse 2? It's people, the, the brothers and the church. Good. Brethren, and Paul is in here, with me, right? And the church, okay? All right, so clearly Paul is writing from a church setting, is he not? from some form of established church. And notice, the brethren with me and the church are folded in between God the Father and Jesus Christ. You see that? God the Father and Jesus Christ fold in the church. Here he is emphasizing the union between us and Christ. And that union, that union of the church, is something very important in Galatians. What happens in Galatians 2 with Peter? What does Peter do? What's that? Paul opposes Peter because Peter breaks the union. He doesn't want to eat with the Gentiles. Okay. And see, before he breaks the union, before that, there is union. Is there not in chapter 2, where you have the apostles of the Jews and the Gentiles in harmony, and then Peter breaks that union? And then, if you even come to the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and 6, you have the bringing of peace into the church so that there's no more envy, a word that Paul repeats a couple times there. The envy and strife. No, Paul is bringing us together in union with God and his son, Jesus Christ. And what is it 
What is it that brings about this union between Paul and the Galatian churches? And this is after these verses. What do we have? God the Father and Jesus Christ. What is Jesus Christ doing? Notice, what do we have in verse 1? What does the end of verse 1 say of God the Father? Who raised Jesus from the dead. Raised Christ from the dead. Now, this book is going to emphasize the great act of God in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. But let's see the other side of this. What does verse 4 have? Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might do what? What? Rescue us? Now, I want you to think of resurrection from the dead. Is there anything else that has... When Jesus is raised from the dead in the New Testament, he brings, if you will, a new age. He brings the age of resurrection. Galatians will talk about when the time had fully come, God for, sent forth his Son in, in incarnation. But then it's going to expand that. When Paul sees Jesus raised from the dead... On the road to Damascus, why is that unique for him? I know Jim knows. Okay, what is Paul as a Pharisee? Remember, he's going to talk about his life past in, Ju in Judaism, right? In Judaism, he doesn't have this point of view. He just has this point of view, a linear view of history. Here's Paul the Jew on the road to Damascus. We're talking about Paul's eschatology. We're talking about how Paul views the end of history. Paul's view of eschatology is that it's all in the future. The day of resurrection is all in the future. So, what happens when he sees resurrection before his face? Okay, what happens? Resurrection was supposed to be in the future. Where is it now? Well, it came to him right on the road. It came to him right on the road, right? So, this resurrection was supposed to inaugurate eschatology, wasn't it? It was supposed to inaugurate like the end of the ages, right? So, resurrection comes with eschatology. See, Paul is saying, realize that what he thought was in the future had come into the present. The eschatological age had intruded into the midst of history. He sees resurrection on the road to Damascus, and his whole eschatological perspective has changed. He can never be the same man. What else as a Jew 
resurrection was in the future, and was not Paul working toward getting to that resurrection day? Working that he may be able to participate in that day, perhaps, through his works? Working as if to bring in the age of resurrection, perhaps? What happens on the road to Damascus? Was it Paul's works that bring this resurrection? Frank? No, it was not Paul's works. It was God's grace. God the Father raising Jesus from the dead. You see how this act influences Paul's view of grace and salvation? It's the same thing that has come to you. It is not what you do to bring in God's justice. It is what God has done in the death and resurrection of his son to bring in the justice of the end of the ages and to justify you in him. Paul mentions here God the Father who raised Christ from the dead. And what's he say in verse 4 then? What's in verse 4 that might remind you of this perspective? Yes. Notice, he might deliver us from this present evil age. And that has been accomplished. That's not just a future. That has been accomplished, delivered from this age, and we have been delivered from this age and made participants in the age above, the age to come, right? So through the resurrection, we're made participants in the age to come. This letter is about the newness of the age that Christ has brought. This is an opposition. This letter is in opposition to a Jewish view of eschatology. That is going to be my claim. It's in opposition to a Jewish view of eschatology. And what the Judaizers are doing by requiring Christians to be circumcised is they are saying, no, you have to go backward into redemptive history. And you have to take the period of the law and in all respects absolutize it and make it, that is, make it an end in itself, as if it will bring in that eschatological age for you. Paul says, no, that has come in Christ. It has come by grace. In fact, I think you can see that if you look in Galatians 6, 14, and 15, you can see the parallel between this deliverance from this age and this rescue from the older administration. Someone want to read verses four, 6, verses 14 and 15. May I never boast except of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Okay, so notice this, this comes toward the end of the letter. And 
he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but a new creation. Was art was there a period when circumcision the difference between circumcision and uncircumcision did matter? Absolutely. Yes, when was that? Among the among the Jews. Among the Jews? Good. Before before Christ came, right? Okay, so uh, even though it wasn't circumcision didn't save, there was still, you know. Uh, if you were part of the people of God and you were a God-fearer, okay, there were these God-fearers who didn't receive circumcision. They were not given the full privileges of the people of God, right? And so there is a distinction between circumcision and uncircumcision, that distinction. But Paul is now saying there is no distinction between circumcision and uncircumcision, but a what? A new creation. So that now in this age, you see, that Christ has brought new creation, there is no such distinction. So you see, once again, he's emphasizing the newness of the kingdom of God and showing how that it has progressed beyond the previous history of redemption. And that's what these Judaizers do not understand. Notice what he says in that verse 2, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Assuming there is something left of this world in that previous administration to which he is now crucified so that now he receives the fullness of the kingdom. Elsewhere in this epistle, he'll associate the older administration with the beggarly principles of this world. And we'll talk about how that's the case. But for now, notice that he's brought us to the age of the kingdom of God. And the capstone of this is in verse 5. Back to chapter 1, verse 5. It is because this work of Christ was according to God's will that we can say God the Father's will, that to whom, to him, be glory forevermore. Amen. The glory forevermore, the glory of the kingdom of God, eternal, magnified, now that Christ has brought this new age. In fact, if we were to look, spend any time on the Old Testament background to this, The glorification of God's name is set in some texts, especially in Ezekiel, is set in contrast to God's name being blasphemed among the nations, especially during the period of the exile. And once God, then God promises to remove the curse from his people and bring them into an everlasting city in which his name will be glorified forever because his name will be not put to shame because he will protect his people forever. And here throughout this epistle, Paul is saying he has delivered us from the curse and we have no more curse in relationship to God our Father. 
In fact, he has become our father in an even new way because he has delivered us from the curse and brought us to the kingdom of heaven. All right, let's look at verses 6 to 9. Any questions about that? Yes, David. Precisely. What does this present evil age refer to? Are we in this, now in the present evil age, was uh, pre-exilic Israel in the present evil age? Okay, well... Uh, I, you know, and, and, and some others can help me being more precise here, but uh, I think that we're in the midst of the present evil age around us, okay? And even as Christians, we have the remnants of the sin that is of this present evil age, but we have been delivered from it, from the bondage to it. So this deliverance is a deliverance of bondage that delivers us from the curse that that age will is experiencing and will experience, and also from the bondage to it. Okay. And it is away from that bondage, you see, to union with Christ. It's not union with the world, it's union with Christ. Now, you, you asked me about how Israel is involved in this here, and I'm, I'm suggesting that Israel was delivered from this age insofar as she believed the promise of God. Okay. And there's a sense in which the people of Israel were delivered from this age insofar as she was delivered in the Exodus and brought into the promised land. But even there, she was not the visible people of God, okay, as a visible people within the land in terms of that administration, were not as fully delivered from this world as we are. Simply because that, if you will, the covenant connection they had with the land and with this world. Okay, There's still promises of earthly inheritance and land promises uh, that though those promises look forward to the heavenly kingdom, yet they're embodied in this worldly promises. And I would suggest to you that insofar as they have that worldly element, there isn't that full freedom that we now experience in Christ. And so by being delivered from this present evil age, we're even delivered insofar as they were still, in some sense, in servitude. Okay, And Paul will talk about this kind of even relative contrast between Israel and servitude and our freedom in Galatians 4. Okay. If you don't feel like you're all getting all that, just 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 hang in there for a few you know a few more weeks or so. <laughs> okay. Now let's uh, let's take I, uh, let's uh, read verses six through ten uh, and then uh, some things on that. So, uh, Helen, do you want to read for us? I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Okay. Now, first of all, can someone find me some words or a word that repeats in verse 1 and then again in verse 10? David, do you see a word or a let's put it, let's let's just start with verse ten because it might be a little easier. Is there a plural word that that uh, that repeats there? A word in the plural. Men. Men. That is correct. Okay. Actually, I put it down twice, but how many times is it? Three times. Okay. Then verse one. Do we see that word again? David? Not sent from men, right? Nor through the agency of man, okay, which is similar. So we have that not from men, but from God, right? So in verse 1, we have the contrast between men and God through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Verse 10, then we have the contrast of seeking the favor of men or of God, you see. And then, if I were seeking to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So we have the same contrast, you see. One has basically men versus God and Christ. And if we put everything together... In verse 10, we have the same contrast of men versus God and Christ. Now, there's also some other things going on here in terms of structure. Keep this in your mind, the contrast between men and God. Are there any repetitions in these verses? Emphatic repetitions. Someone's got one of them. Robert, did you say something? Okay, we have one in the last verse we just looked at, verse 10. What is the emphatic repetitions there? Perhaps emphatic repetitions. At least there's something similar to that. Craig? Please, men. Please, men. Okay, so... Uh, Am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. But, yes, you've got this sense of the very first part of 10, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? You see? 
Or am I striving to please men? That's the kind of repetition I'm talking about. Okay, the first two sentences of that, that statement, you see. Uh, it's a repetition of a question, if you will. Right? With the obvious answer that he's seeking to please God. How about verses 8 and 9? Okay, they have the same ending. And what what do you give us a expand on that, Kay? It says let him be eternally condemned. Let him be eternally condemned. Let him be accursed, right? And essentially, he's saying in verse nine, I mean he he's saying in verse nine, as we have said before, so I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel uh, contrary to which you have received, let him be accursed, right? He's essentially repeating what he has said in verse 8. Okay, so you've got uh, the repetition of a question in verse 10. And you have a repetition of a question in 10. And then you have this, these, these same things repeated in 8 and 9. You see, if statements saying, if any man does this, let him be accursed, right? And accursed. Now, if we could get any sense of Paul's emotional involvement in this, do you think he is expressing a particular, any kind of affections here? Is he just sitting back and saying, you know, if anybody doesn't preach the gospel of Christ, just let him be cursed. Yeah, let him be cursed. <laughs> no. His Paul, his whole heart is into this, isn't it? Okay? So there's a lot going on in these verses. And what about verse 6? What does it say there? I am what? Amazed. I'm astonished, right? This is a man who is very involved. He is astonished at their rejection of the gospel. And then he says, anybody who preaches such a gospel, let him be cursed, let him be cursed. Am I seeking to please men or God? No. I'm seeking to please God. Perhaps even with the words he puts forward, he's seeking to please God. Now, if we look at verses 6 and 7... I am amazed that you're quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. These distorters, if you will, they are distorting this gospel in such a way that it is not the gospel that he just proclaimed. What has he just said about the gospel in 1 to 5? Christ died for our sins and he was and he was raised from the dead. So he's spoken about Christ's death and resurrection and that he might do what? 
deliver us from this present evil age. He is speaking about his eschatological gospel. And then he is saying in verse 6, I am amazed that you are rejecting this gospel and you are turning to another gospel. You see, the Judaism that is that he is fighting against is rejecting this gospel. It's not simply rejecting the doctrine of justification by faith as an isolated doctrinal category. That is true. They are rejecting the doctrine of justification as the Reformation preached it, because the Reformation preached what Paul preached. But they are also rejecting Paul's eschatological gospel, the context in which he sees justification. You see, Paul saw his justification because Christ was justified in his resurrection, Paul was justified in him. And God brought the end of the age. Paul doesn't need to now seek to justify himself and bring in that age. These Judaizers are rejecting that message. They are trying to get people to justify themselves. And to justify themselves by living in a frame of mind in which their lives are a form of self-justification so that maybe someday they may reach that pinnacle of blessedness by their own works. Judaizers don't get the message of grace. And he's amazed they're rejecting it for what he's calling a different gospel. And it's not another. They're disturbing you. You see, they're disturbing you. This gospel brings the harmony that we spoke, that we saw him speak of in those earlier verses with our connection here of God the Father and Christ bringing us all into harmony. Why does this bring us into harmony? Because you see, if each of us is seeking to have our own little eschatology that we work at, what I mean is, think about this. As a natural human being, we all have this worldly eschatologies. You've been living with it your whole life. Okay? So have I. This little worldly eschatologies. You know, one person has this goal in their life. How they're going to make their life successful. Okay? And if other people get in the way, here's their eschatology. I don't... You know, care whatever goal it is you set for yourself when you are going to be happy and blessed forever. You know, one first person has this eschatology. Second person has a different eschatology that they seek for, okay, where they're going to be happy and blessed forever. All right? And a third person has their other little eschatology. What happens when all your little eschatologies come into conflict? Well, you know, number two gets in the way of my eschatology. gets in the way of me and my goals. You're going to fight and kick, aren't you? You're going to scream. There's going to be con- you know, conflict between you. And you see, that brings disharmony. This gospel is a gospel of a universal eschatology, one that God has brought for all of us in Jesus Christ. It has been accomplished for all of us And as we all enter into that together in union, then of course, we're going to be in union and harmony in God the Father and Jesus Christ. So when somebody tries to pervert this gospel and get and reject this gospel, they're bringing disharmony and discord 
you see. They're making you go back to your own little individual eschatologies and leading you toward disharmony and, and, and you know, arguments and all kinds of things. So, Paul is zealous for this gospel, you see. And these Judaizers are therefore wanting them to be earthly-minded. And what happens when you are earthly-minded? What happens when you are earthly-minded? Well, part of what happens when you are earthly-minded is there may be, it's not just you that has this eschatology, but maybe you and number five and number six, you all have this eschatology together. As opposed to, you know, person number two and person number 10 and 11, they have a different eschatology. You guys work now in teams. All right? So your little eschatology with your groupies, what are you trying to do? Please men. Okay? Part of what you're doing is you're seeking to please men. What does Peter do in Acts chapter 2? He's called a hypocrite twice. Why? Because he's seeking to please men. He's seeking to please the Jewish group that has their own little Jewish eschatology, you see. They're one groupies versus the others. Paul's opposed to that. See verse 10, he says, If I am seeking the favor of men or of God, if I was striving to please men... If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant of who? Christ, you see? You see, he brings it back to the Lord Jesus. Insofar as you are seeking the favor of men, you are looking at, on the horizontal level, you see, in terms of this age, who you can please in this age, and how you can gain your satisfaction from them, and that, and that way you're pleasing them. He's saying, no. I am a bond servant of Christ. I come to this gospel which has liberated me from that bondage, bondage to human beings, bondage to this age. And I have been made a bond servant of Jesus Christ. That's where I have my liberty. United to him. And all God's people united in him. And therefore I am called to seek to please God. I am to be satisfied with the grace of God that has come to me in Jesus Christ and therefore seek first and foremost to please God. And that's out the perspective out of which Paul then opposes anything that is in opposition to Christ. Because being in opposition to Christ, it is also in opposition to his people, but especially of his Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, this is yours. This is your grace. This is your life. And as we look more into this epistle, reflect upon the glories of the kingdom of God that has been brought to you in his Son, that you might be lifted up in heavenly places, delivered from this present evil age. That's it for tonight. Yes, Dave. Uh, maybe you don't want to answer this, but I 
I have a question about the words, let him be accursed. Are these words of exhortation, or do they have operative legal effect? Very interesting question coming from an attorney. <laughs> hmm. Well, I, I, my response would have to be off the cuff that they probably have operative legal effect because they're the word of God himself, right? Just like the word of the prophet. Um, so that God is pronouncing a curse through his servant, Paul, on any who reject the gospel. Um, you have any other thoughts on that? I mean, if, if you want it that precisely. The curse is, interestingly enough, contrasted to, of course, the blessing that he's going to say the church has in Christ, you see. Because the blessing is the deliverance from the curse that we now have and been made a part of the age to come. So anyone who rejects this gospel, they're going to have nothing but curse. They're going to be in bondage to this wicked, evil age upon which they have curse. And even more so, perhaps since they're the ones who are enticing others to fall away from Christ. Yes? An example of forensic rhetoric. Perhaps. Perhaps. He's a forensic specialist. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, if there's no more questions, have a good week. Thank you for coming.